Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have had my first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am unimpressed by the leadership skills of Captain Kirk. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Breakfast Stout from Founders Brewery. Another Founders. This is a, a, they are well regarded for their creation of beers. And so I'm excited to be drinking another of their products. What was the last one we drank? Uh, we had KBS like a while ago, which is, was one of like the super premium imperial creations that came with a high recommendation. This one is a coffee-themed, and I can kind of smell it, so we'll see how it plays. And it's an oatmeal. I like oatmeals. What are we doing today, scholar? Standardized testing is happening again this year. Researchers are talking about how to use the data more responsibly. We read an advising memo that describes some of the common problems with comparing testing data from this year to past years, so we can properly recognize the progress students have made this year. Later, we discuss several studies that look at the impact later high school start times have on a variety of outcomes for student achievement and community health. Finally, we talk in your classroom to think about our personal definition of success after a very difficult year. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read three test score metrics that all states should report in the COVID-19 affected spring of 2021. This is written by Andrew Ho and it is pre-publication. So this is a, a memo uh, that he wrote and uh, broadly has um, spoken on and just um, just disseminated with some guidance based on his expertise for how schools should approach um, interpreting and discussing the standardized test results that they're expecting to get out of this affected um, spring 2021 season, given that we're being required to give standardized testing in educational settings, um, which was controversial. I think there's some justification in in this memo in this approach. He's saying that okay, uh, the the whole point of standardized tests is I- any standardized measurement is that you uh, you take them uh, and compare them against uh, each other because so much of the circumstance is controlled, and that way you can make uh, some conclusions about the validity of of of. Uh, influence and changes in in the data. But when the whole world has been turned on its head, we can't just assume that if we do things normally, they're going to give us information that is usable. So, of course, we have to kind of change the way we look at these test results. Makes sense. So I cued this paper because discussions of giving standardized tests this semester have been like passionate and plentiful on social media over the course of the last few months, really intensifying um, recently. So the United States um, government, uh, President Biden, of course, his Department of Education have declared that states need to give their usual standardized testing regimens this year. Um, and that's different from last year. So we finished uh, when we finished 2020 in the spring, there was lots of exemptions for standardized testing in 2020. And so after a year of um, disruption of remote and hybrid approaches to teaching, um, 
the government is required that we got to give these standardized tests. And that's really gotten a lot of response from both opponents and proponents of um, the approach. And so in this discussion, I thought it might be useful to think about since they are happening and we've got to be giving these standardized tests, what can we do to approach using that data responsibly and judiciously given that it's going to exist, that we've got to give it. And so um, I thought it might be worth talking a little bit first about um, maybe just a little bit of the discussion of why we would or wouldn't give standardized tests um, so that we can recognize the limitations of that testing in part by considering Dr. Ho's recommendations for how to approach them from a responsible quantitative standpoint. That was my rationale. Like, so I'm going to ask you directly, I'm going to ask you directly and you don't have to answer it for tape, but like just for the sake of provocation, do you think we should be giving standardized tests this year? Uh, well, the problem is I'm not sure that I'm convinced that we should be giving standardized tests in school full stop. So like, eh, no. Why Why not? Uh, uh, and, and, and the thing is, uh, I'm not super invested in this. Uh, and so um, I've kind of just acknowledged them as an outside entity. Okay, there are tests. Somebody cares. It's not me. I'll let them care. And I will move on about the things that I do care about. So uh, as a practitioner, those tests are so far removed from my reality. And I recognize that's not a, like a national truth. There are people in different environments that are working in different uh, areas where the tests have a whole lot more influence and stake and, and, and uh, attention on a day-to-day basis than, than the life I'm living. But uh, since I am, I, I'm not informed about the tests. I don't deconstruct the tests. I don't, I don't even know how my kids do on the tests. I know how kids in Kansas do on the tests. I can sometimes know about kids in certain grades do on the tests, but I don't know how my kids do on the test. Uh, so, uh, I don't care. I don't care. I'm glad that people who care have better ways to use the data, which is basically what this is about. But it, as a practitioner in the classroom, this paper and the implementation of those tests don't affect me at all. Which is which, which I think is excellent. Like that's like from a best case scenario, the the data can be useful for examining like building wide or district wide um, approaches to curriculum or professional. Like it can help us examine questions of like policy. But as far as there are are too many teachers, I'm going to say there are too many teachers for whom things like standardized testing data have real implications for them keeping their job or for them um, being able to get a a more desirable teaching position. Um, It influences their evaluations. And uh, I think that's a yeah. So I so I think that's a problem, period. But for teachers who are navigating some of those situations you described where the standardized tests are a much bigger deal as far as determining their ability to do their job on the long term, uh, I think a paper like this can equip them to call for more contextualized analysis, especially in a situation this year and in in the time that we spend analyzing the data where we can make some fallacious conclusions about what we've been able to accomplish in education over the course of this school year uh, to better um, defend themselves and defend their work they're doing and defend the work that their students have done over the course of this year. And I think that this paper, while no, I don't know that there's very many classroom teachers who need to understand the mathematical intricacies of the measures that Dr. Ho describes. I think being equipped with a memo like this and understanding the implications of the measures he's describing um, can be useful for 
calling for a better discussion of standardized testing data if you're in a position where you need to be doing something like that. And gosh, I hope you're not. Like, I, I hope that you don't have to be in that position, but I recognize that lots of folks do. And so uh, to, to equip them in navigating that kind of environment, this paper could be really useful. Yeah, that makes sense. If, if, if there's someone in a position that makes decisions about my employment using the standardized test data of my students, I would definitely want them to control for the fact that we're in a pandemic this year. I would definitely want that. So uh, whether or not I understood the statistics of how that was, was done, I would definitely want the people in my district who look at this and care about it to do so with an informed eye. And so um, let's, that brings us to the, the three suggestions, the three recommendations that Dr. Ho made in short were that there are three measures that need to come with your standardized testing results if you're going to report them in the public or if you're going to make decisions based on those results. And so um, he makes lots of assumptions about standardized tests still meaning the same thing conceptually. But then if you're going to have like your standardized scores went up 7%, that needs to come with some additional measures that describe how well that change this year compares to changes in past years or in potential future years, um, which I think is a useful way to think about it. Um, how well do the data match? Because we say standardized tests, which is a different term than high stakes tests. And they're often the same thing, but in this case, they're not. They're not the same thing. A high stakes test is like an end of course exam that students take that have real implications. You get one crack at it and the results are going to determine the funding for your school. They're going to determine the evaluations of your teacher. They're going to determine if you get college credit. They are a high stakes assessment. That is different from saying it's a standardized assessment, which says something about the validity and reliability of the measure that you're taking. And in a lot of cases, high stakes tests need to be standardized tests. But in this case, we haven't standardized nearly as much as we usually do because we're in a flipping pandemic. And so the context within which we give these assessments and the context within which we've done the learning that we're trying to measure are far from standardized. And so we need to be able to describe how this test is unstandardized compared to prior context when it's been given. So one of the like conceptual questions that we have to answer is how well do the, does the group of students who've taken the test this year compare to the group of students who usually take this test? Um, because that group is probably pretty different this year in, in some contexts, at least. For instance, in my school, uh, about 25% of our kids are learning in a 100% remote environment for the duration of the school year, and they are exempt from the tests this year. We're only giving the tests to the kids who are in-person learners. So that's a fraction of students who are not, that's a large fraction of students who are not involved. And then the question is, is there some kind of demographic link between students who chose to be 100% remote and those that were in, that were in person? And if there is, is that significant enough to change the validity of comparing this test to prior test years? And it is, it, it just is. Uh, so we have to, so we have to recognize that it's not to say uh, that we cannot give the test because we can't, that's out. That's a decision outside of all of our hands. Uh, so we're giving it, but that can contextualize if our scores don't look the way we expected them to, or the way we want them to, or the way they have in the past, it can be a, it can be another piece of explaining that difference is well, the students who took the test this year are not a comparable group 
to the students who usually take the test each year. They don't match. The term for that is a, is a match rate. How, how well does it match? And there are mathematical ways to calculate that. And he describes a few of them in his memo. This almost, gosh, I don't even know what to say. If our kids are showing a 6% increase in, in a certain, you know, proficiency of some skill, uh, but then they typically show a 15% increase in that skill. Are we proud of ourselves because they grew? Are we proud of ourselves because um, uh, they didn't, they, the, the drop wasn't as bad as we thought it could have been in a pandemic? Uh, are we okay with ourselves because that's the kind of growth you get in a pandemic? I don't know, but this is what this uh, calculation is supposed to help us come to terms with. Yeah. And that's, a, and that's, a, I'm not feeling good about getting into the, the technical details, but the, so really this this conversation is about if I am a teacher and I am feeling tension or discomfort or I'm feeling threatened because these standardized tests are being required to be given, what can I do to find a way to continue to pursue my goals as an educator and mitigate the threat that I may be perceiving in these standardized tests? That's really That's really the best version of this conversation in my head. And so there are really two halves of that conversation, one of which I think you'll have more to say than the other, uh, because one of them is how do I approach my teaching for the remainder of the year under the assumptions that standardized tests are given and that I care about them? Not that I care about them, but that the scores have a material impact on me. Find a new district is my like practical answer. Like, uh, like, correcting for like this whole memo feels like we're going to try to mathematically correct for the fact that the standardized testing this year is a really bad idea. That's kind of how I felt. Uh, Yes, I think that that's true. And so I, I I think we should persist with that line of thinking because if I'm teaching in the classroom, the standardized test measurements are bad. So like, even if I have the opportunity to teach to my understanding of the test, I shouldn't. Like because students need specific things and those things are even more uh, difficult to predict based on past experience because we're in a pandemic right now and have been for over a year. And so doing my best for the students to give them what they need academically and to give them what they need from a social emotional perspective, from a practice perspective, um, I think is really is, is more important and more likely even to have an impact on test scores than something that I might design as test prep. So then the question is, if I'm going to make that choice, what can I do to equip my, what can I do to get the most out of the standardized test scores? And what can I do to, to equip myself to defend myself from whatever, from somebody who wants to use them to undermine my, my position in a classroom. Cause I think there are things we can get out of standardized test scores. I think that's the position of the Biden administration. Right. And, and I, I think that uh, maybe, maybe, I mean, this, this memo is recent. It's topical. It's, it has some shoulds in it for people who analyze these standardized test scores. But I think the real, like, you know, in education perspective should be, uh, it would probably, it would be nice to read a paper that talks about the inappropriate uses of test scores from an administration perspective and appropriate uses of test scores from an administration perspective. Because the paper is like, this is how you correct for the flaws of a pandemic. But really the philosophical, how do we use test scores is the more important 
bigger picture because once you got okay we got a we got a we got a mathematical patch we're gonna apply it to our no, normal modus operandi when i just am so like you know I think that we have more to say about the philosophical flaws of micromanaging teacher expectations with standardized test scores as an inappropriate use of them uh, when we could have – like if this is about shoulds, then why don't we read some papers about what we should be doing with standardized test scores? And if we're, if the, if we're not talking about those shoulds, then you, you shouldn't be doing those things with the standardized test scores. I mean, let's talk about them now. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a lot of hard hitting stuff directly taken from this memo. So I want to talk about them now. Yeah. And, and I, the only reason why I, I couch that as a, as a thing we should have done is because we like to base our discussions and like salient in our hands research. Uh, and I don't have any off the top of my head, but the, the, complicated relationship between teaching and standardized test scores has been discussed on this show before and it has been discussed in in education before and there was as you let me know because i don't exist in the social media space it's been a discussion of controversy for the past months so uh you know people know that there's a tension between teaching and standardized test scores that's not really a mystery right yeah, because there's a because there's a, a couple of important comments that have come out of that. You, the, aside from the lost instructional time, which is a non-zero cost, it is not without a cost, uh, and the the monetary cost to go into developing um, a test, even to the degree that it is standardized here, like vetting items and evaluating psychometric properties. Like, there's a lot of in, investment that has to go into making a test that can allow you to generate data comparable across broad swaths across across districts across states and you know and even nationally or internationally a lot of investment has to go into that so these are not without a cost but if they don't exist and we are only relying on the idiosyncratic assessment practices of every individual teacher there are flaws in the assessment practices of individual teachers especially when you zoom in to specific um specific examples there are clusters of teachers who are designing assessments that have um, biases in them, that have racist or misogynist um, perspectives baked into those assessments that disadvantage specific students who are already currently excluded from access to opportunities and resources. Um, so I struggle with all of the critiques that exist, many as there are, for our current assessment practices writ large. But if we had no comparable assessment at matri uh, metrics between schools, like is, is not knowing the answer, like is not trying, is not having any data, the answer. Uh, I, it's just intention with me. Like I have sat in a room and laughed at the statement. No bad data is better than no data at all. Cause that is false. Like right. that's false. If you're using it in ways that decrease the educational opportunities of your students by uh, hamstringing the passion and creativity of your teachers, then yes, get collect no data, collect no data, and stop doing that. Um, if you are incur if you are using it to find trends in your district uh, for areas to inquire how like. If you're if you're in a district leadership and you're like, wow, our 
education or language instruction is lagging behind our other departments. So asking the question of your language teachers, hey, what do you need to improve your practice and how can we help you? Then standardized testing is helping you identify where you can flex and leverage your influence as administrators and leaderships by asking the teachers what they need directly to empower their practice. And so, uh, yeah, it's got its place. And so in, in if you're using it that way, find better ways to make the information accurate and applicable. Uh, but if you're using it in a harmful way, just forget about it. Just ignore it. It doesn't. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But, but that's not a that's not a data problem. That's to just stop doing the bad thing with the data, and the and and it can be it, it's been powerful in our practice specifically. Like there like there's a story I trot out regularly about how we were giving a common assessment in in when we worked together, and it gave us pause to sit down and go through the material and have some conversations about why our our differences in the data were the way they were. And I think that we both grew. I think we both found areas of improvement in our instructional practice based on that conversation and the comparisons that we could make between each other. And so I think the important distinction is not that the data existed or there were definitely flaws in the assessment that we gave, like that we were comparing, there were definitely flaws in there, but it was never used as a cudgel. And that's like an essential, essential component is it was never, it was never a stick. It was never a threat. It was, uh, I mean, it goes back to like my sign off that's been for four years, discuss research, like collect the data and discuss it and discuss it some more. And if that discussion leads somewhere valuable, do that, but you're not doing the valuable thing under the threat of the data. It's just shine, shown a light on something that's worth discussing. Yeah. Uh, a note about that particular exam, it was not high stakes, which is why we could feel safe enough to admit that, wow, I, I really, none of my kids did well on this particular topic. That's, that's really interesting. And your kids did great. What, let's talk about the differences between us that might contribute to that. And so it was a discussion piece because I knew that no one else was going to care. No one in the district, none of, no one in the department, no one in the administration, no one was going to care. It was, it was, a, it was low stakes. And then, as you mentioned, the test had flaws. I would argue that not only was it not high stakes, it was also not standardized. And it was, uh, it was kind of, a uh, just because it was common, that doesn't mean it's standardized. And um, uh, it, it was a discussion piece as opposed to a deciding factor uh, in, in what was going to happen in my life or my classroom. And that changed our relationship significantly. Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read, Does start time at high school really matter? Studying the impact of high school start time on achievement, attendance, and graduation rates of high school students. This was written by Holly Kwan, Michelle Peters, Antonio Corrales, and Amy Orange. Published in 2020 in the uh, journal AASA Journal of Scholarship and Practice. Hey, thanks for queuing this one. Yeah, I cued this paper in response to a new show practice we have uh, where I am doing a better job of explicitly asking Lawrence to tell me more about his professional priorities as uh, we now have several years between when we actually work together. And so maintaining this professional relationship takes work. And a piece of that work is me spending time 
working to understand what you want to be doing and how you want to be getting better as a professional. And so um, you said, I want to read something about school scheduling and specifically how it relates to start time. So I went and found something. Uh, I really appreciate that. Our district had said, well, you know, things are all disrupted right now. We already got like the weirdest of schedules and things are bizarro and uh, they've changed and shifted so many times during the school year. But we presume that there will be some return to normalcy in the future uh, and we don't have to go back to doing what we were doing before. So we're taking suggestions about how the schedules can change in the future. And uh, I said, well, I want to have research uh, to support my uh, uh advocacy. And so uh, here we are reading some research about school start times and uh, uh, student uh, consequences. And this topic has been researched and discussed and explored for at least 20 years, because I remember hearing about it when I was in high school. Uh, one of my teachers made an offhand comment about start times because we started, I started in a school where the high school started at 745. And uh and he made some comment about how, well, you know, uh, the research kind of suggests that we should be doing this later. And of course, every single high schooler in that classroom just thought that that was the best thing ever. And now we know better than everyone. And I just haven't, I've just been holding on to that perspective for the entirety of my life, uh, that later school is better. But uh, what does the research say? That's that's a, a more more nuanced perspective. So what do we got here, Ralph? First off, uh, so you said there's been a lot of research and I totally believe that. And I didn't even like, I didn't even consciously think about, I had trouble finding research for this topic. Uh, I struggled. Uh, and that's probably because of the parameters by which we, I choose papers for this, this show. Cause I demand highly current papers for our discussions. And we basically lose an entire year because start times are not really relevant in remotely delivered instruction. So, uh, so like we are severely limited by the available literature that's um, been published now. Um, and I just, I didn't even think about that. I was you were like, there's a lot of literature. And I'm like, really? Cause I didn't find any of it. Oh yeah. Cause like my first step in searching is to put on a, an age filter. Um, so oh, that makes sense. Um, so what I saw was there's like hand over fist. Everybody does their dissertation on this topic. So I found like, I found doctoral and master's dissertations just left and right. Even uh, there was even actually, I almost cued somebody wrote it for a bachelor's thesis. Um, well, uh, what we did cue, of course, because I've had this like biased perspective about later start times since the nineties that I formed when I was a high schooler. So, you know, as, as mature and nuanced, that perspective is going to be, um, I really wanted this to be like a bold, strong smoking gun that I could take to anyone and say, there's nothing that you can say that could stop my belief that later start times are the best thing in the world. Uh, but uh, this isn't really that. This isn't really that. What this should have been, this paper should have been a qualitative paper about the 15 interviews they did. That's it. Like that, they should have just analyzed those interviews and discussed like, here are the perspectives of superintendents from a variety of schools in Texas. And that would have been like a, a reasonable body of work to present. Um, I really see a lot of problems in their quantitative analysis methods. So, um, so where I want to start with this paper is actually the, the best, the best piece of it that I felt, uh, was their introduction, was their background. They had a pretty decent description of, 
um, of some of the, the existing literature on this, which all is consistent with what I think you were hoping to read, which is that later start times do matter and they matter in these ways. Yes, exactly. So, uh, so start times matter because humans are uh, organisms and it turns out organisms have life cycles and we have different developmental stages. Most, most of us do. And, uh, in those developmental stages, our bodies feel physiologically react to stimuli differently. So that's a lot of biology jargon for the audience members that are biologists out there. So what am I saying? It turns out teenagers naturally stay up later and fall asleep later. Uh, and that their bodies just do that no matter what we kind of do to them. And of course, you know, all of this is on a bell curve and you're going to have some of those teenagers that are just absolute uh, uh, morning people. But for the most of them, they shift, they crawl into the later of the night. So their, their brains are more active later in the morning. Um, they're physiologically more active later in the morning and later in the, and during the day and later into the night. And so what we've done is uh, as we continue to age, it actually crawls backwards. So we shift later into the night into our teens and 20s, and then in our 30s, it shifts backwards in the other direction. And um, our current system of, of, of education is actually traditionally kind of peaked for um, uh, elementary school kids and adults. Like it, it works for us uh, with our bell curve of scheduling, but but then our high schoolers suffer because it is not it is not standardized for them because we just kind of all start at the same time. It's convenient to drop your kids off at school first and then go to the high school and start teaching. And so the kids, the the, the younger kids, start earlier, and the and the and the high schoolers have to just start at the same time. And that's that is a restriction based on an assumption that is not acknowledging their biological differences. So what happens when we do acknowledge those biological differences? And that was kind of what I was hoping that we would read about. In their introduction, they shared a couple of statistics that really jumped out at me. Um, there was a, they talked about the difference between um, how often teenagers get the amount of sleep that they need. Uh, and so they, you know, the, um, American Association of Pediatrics recommends that uh, a teenager gets about nine to 10 hours of sleep a night. And they talked about uh, from 12 to 14 years old, only 29% of them get that much sleep. And once you get to high school age, 15 to 17, 10% get as much sleep as they need. So like sleep deprivation is the norm. Most of your teenagers, most of your high schoolers are sleep deprived chronically in our current system. And that's a problem. They used a phrase that I found provocative. They said social jet lag, which like that resonated with me like that. That just that felt good. I'm going to repeat that phrase. I kind of feel like uh, I have an opportunity here to break a little bit of a few of the rules uh, because I have a lot to discuss that you didn't read, Ralph, because uh, in, in, in my own personal exploration of this topic, I found a study with a very punny title called Sleep More in Seattle. Later school start times are associated with more sleep and better performance in high school students. And this was an interesting study. This was published in 2018. So it violates our strict recency uh, uh, rules. But uh, that's just for foundational segments. We, we cite older, like older stuff is not broken, right? So... Uh, and, and so in this was a very interesting study because in this study, the school district of Seattle had decided to shift to a later start time. And that is the premise. We're going to start school at nine o'clock. 
And so researchers were like, holy crap, we can do some before and after data. And so they gave a cohort of students Fitbits and said, you can have these as long as you report your sleep data to us. And, and the community was like, great, Fitbits are a big fad in the mid to, in the pit, mid-teens. So we're getting a bunch of free Fitbits and uh, we'll give you our sleep data. And so they did. And so the researchers were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to get a bunch of kids. We're going to follow them through the cohort. We're going to get their sleep data before and the sleep data after. Uh, and we're going to then do measurements of grades and we're going to do uh, interviews and we're going to get as much data about this as we can. And I, I've link this in the show notes so you guys should have access to this if you want to sleep more in Seattle. And uh, they found that on, uh, by delaying school start time by an hour, the student body increased their sleep time by 30 minutes uh, as an average, an increase in sleep time of 30 minutes for an hour later sleep time. Sleep, sleep time. Uh, that was significant and a substantial amount of sleep. They did find that there were uh, grade improvements. It was a 5% increase in grade improvements uh, uh, amongst the student body. So if you'd been averaging an 82, you're getting an 87. If you've been averaging an 87, you're getting a 92 as far as like a GPA and those kinds of effects. Um, they also found uh, there was um, some secondary un- uh, anticipated measurements. They went back for another round of measurements of certain things. They found that there were fewer car accidents in the region. Um, so uh, uh, I really appreciated that paper, which is one of the ones that I found uh, because it, uh, it, I felt that it did a good job of getting like measurable physiological data from the kids and then secondary consequences in school education from the kids. Now, maybe it was all written from a perspective, let's measure the stuff we expect to find so that we feel good about our decision. Maybe it was. I don't have the statistical analysis chops to look at them and say, shame on you for how you did this. This paper is in science. This paper is published in Science Advances. So... Yeah, from the American Academy for the Advancement of Sciences, that organization. So you're right. They have a high standard for peer review. Well, that's been established. Uh, so, uh, uh, and so it's, it may not be the hottest, most recent article. It's still fairly recent. It's a major metropolitan area, and it measures not just the consequences to the kids' grades, uh, but it... Um, it does some interview stuff about how they feel. So it doesn't hit, it doesn't measure mental wellness effects, but it uh, acknowledges them. Uh, and it has suggestion that there were, um, there were um, some potential regional economic benefits. Uh, now, I've been looking for research about economic benefits of, of later school start times, and the only one I found was, was not peer-reviewed. It was from an organization that was a... Um, uh, an advocacy organization uh, that attempts to influence policies. So um, I, I feel good about it, but it's not peer reviewed. So, you know, what am I going to say? Uh, their paper, you know, suggested that there are, um, uh, it, it, it was sort of a, it was a macroeconomic modeling approach, getting data from 47 schools, 47 states, rather, about school start times and economic advantages and, and economic trends. And they suggested that schools with later start times have better economic uh, 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 environments than those that don't. But I can't go around talking about how great that was. So, so there's a lot of there's a there's a growing body of evidence 
that we need to be starting school later for high schoolers than we are currently. Uh, and like, I, I mentioned a story on social media that I'm going to tell you because um, in my like irresponsibility as a 17 year old in high school, um, I actually ended up scheduling myself a resource period first hour for a lot of the time I was in high school specifically so I could arrive very late. Like I, like I showed up long after school was supposed to have started um, because this resource teacher did not apply consequences for that choice. Uh, and at the time I didn't know or care why that was. I just was like, I, I can come to school late a lot and that's great. And I, you know, whatever, all the other benefits of resource. Um, but in looking back on it now with my more fully developed prefrontal cortex, I really feel grateful to that teacher because uh, for whatever the reasons he made that choice, it definitely like I chose it to allow me to sleep and to sleep more. Like that was why I enrolled in that course. Uh, and like that had material benefits for me. Like I, I'm certain that that helped me um, have a better, have a better um, sleep balance in my life. So, uh, so there's a growing body of evidence that shows that high schools shouldn't be starting as early as they are. If we want to reap the maximum benefits as far as academic growth and just human development um, that aligns with what teenagers need. Know your students. For our third segment, we are going to do another round of In Your Classroom, Mr. Woodruff. And so I have a prompt that I'd like to hear you react to. I'm going to read it in full and let you respond in part. My question is, as you reflect on the academic year this summer, uh, by what criteria will you define your success? Uh, and then how are those criteria different from last year? And how do you expect they might be different a year from now? Um, so maybe we ought to start with just a discussion of your criteria. What do you think? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because it's I think a lot of teachers are wrestling with this. And before I talk about myself, I want to talk about a wise insight that a colleague had uh, that I kind of wish I had adopted at the beginning of the year when when he had when he and she both of them two two had worked together. Two of our chemistry teachers who work closely with each other uh, said that their job isn't going to be about success on the AP test. Their job isn't going to be about uh, uh, what's the word fidelity with the college by college chemistry curriculum, their goal, their criteria is that at the end of this year, their students do not hate science. And that is what they were holding themselves accountable to during the course of this school year. I thought, Hey, that's noble and admirable and wonderful. And then I did not adopt that for myself. So, um, I kind of, I say, okay, good for you guys for, for setting your priorities early. Now I didn't do it. I, I did not do that recently. The week I'm currently in my spring break. This is the second Saturday of spring break. My spring break is coming to an end. I'll be going back to the classroom this next week. But two weeks ago, my last week before spring break, I was punishing myself unfairly um, because we took a test over content that we would normally assess in October. And in one of my classes... 50% of the kids still had not exhibited mastery at the level consistent with my expectations. And that hurt, that hurt a lot. That, that, 
in the end, you know, looking back, it's a cost of comparison. It's like comparing yourself to the Instagram model who spends 20 hours a day making themselves look pretty and establishing the best shot that they can and taking all of the makeup uh, resources that they've got and, and constructing an image and then comparing yourself to that, which because you have a, a life with different priorities and different needs, you can't actually meet that image and then judging yourself as inadequate because you've done so. That's what I did. I compared myself to the progress that I had made with students last year and said, you are a bad teacher. Now we can academically look at our time investments. We can say, okay, my kids have been seeing me for two thirds of first semester online. And then for one third of first semester with half contact in person. So like, I don't have the hours of contact and I don't have the quality of content that I had last year. That's true of this year. All of my hours with them, except for like uh, the, the week, the month of March. So January and February have all been half contact time. So why would I expect I would be anywhere near where I was last year? How, how could I possibly be anywhere near where I was last year when at best I have, I've had contact. I've lost 40% of my time with them at best. The most generous, the most generous estimation is that I have 40% less time with them. That's assuming online time is equivalent to in-person time. Why would I damage, why would I shame myself? And it was, I felt terrible. I felt terrible and I'll, I made a mistake. I felt terrible. And then I was, I had a hard, like, I had a hard, like, like we've got to reset our culture. We've got to redefine our priorities. We've got to redefine our behaviors. Like I took one of my classes to task about like, what are we doing here? Let's, let's get on the ball and da, 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 da. And then I had to later apologize to them later that week. I was like, you know what? Actually, that's just nuts. That's just crazy that I would bring us to that place because my priority this year is really should be to reduce the number of deaths and significant illnesses in the sphere of myself and my students. Recognizing that, uh, how do I say, can I reduce the amount of personal professional stress I have and not outsource it to my kids? That is going to be my metrics of success. That is my criteria of success. When my students say at the end of the year, um, they felt supported, comfortable, and they learned a lot in my class. That's what I want them to say, that they felt supported, safe, comfortable, and they learned a lot in my class. And that is all that I'm going for this year. If my kids can say that at the end of the year, then I will have met my criteria for this year. Listen, plan, and play. So, shall we? Are we ready? How was the beer? Yeah, the beer. I I really liked this one. I it's it's not quite as heavy in my perception of the like oatmeal qualities. It's pretty robust, but it's not. It this hit a perfect balance for me of being pretty drinkable um, while still being fairly stout. I really like this one. So it's an eight point three alcohol by volume, which means it's not um, like it's not one of the heavy hitters, but it's more. It's it's got some heft there in the alcohol department. It's a little, I think it's a little more uh, acidic or at least bitey than like, a, you know, it's, it's more bitey than a Guinness, uh, but it makes sense because that, that coffee has more bite to it, right? And this is, this is basically, this is a double chocolate coffee oatmeal stout. So there's a lot of modifiers to this breakfast stout. Uh, and I can, I, can, I can 
I can feel the coffee acidity. That's what I want to say is that when I drink this, I feel the coffee acidity. It tastes like uh, a sharp coffee sound. It does. Yeah. I'm not sure I could have picked all those out ignorant, but hearing the description, I, it, it, they are all in there. I can catch the coffee at the front. I can catch the coffee in the middle and the oatmeal on the finish. Like they, they are all represented. That's a, so that's impressive. Uh, so let's hear what our beer vizier says. Uh, this beer has turned up the sweetness and bitterness built on the backbone of a fairly classic imperial oatmeal stout, uh, leading to a balanced beer. And he has an, a personal comment. I'm glad you went with this rather than KBS, which I find to be just sweet on sweet on sweet. So uh, he doesn't know that we've done KBS before on this show. So it was ruled out for consideration before we even started. But uh, I'm glad that he finds this moderate, uh, heavy APV alcohol to be uh, uh, acceptable. I do too. Yeah, awesome. Hearing him note balance makes me feel like I nailed it because that is my experience. This is a very well-balanced well beer. We appreciate you turning in for another month. Uh, we know that the end of the school year is coming up upon us soon, and so uh, don't sweat those standardized test scores. What you are doing is important. Keeping your students and yourself safe is important. Um, get through the end of this year, and then we need you again because what you do is important. Uh, we will see you again next month. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well. <laughs>